I invite you to turn with me to the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. I do want to publicly endorse and admonish the sermon from last week and appreciated Brother Brian and his willingness to fill in for me while I was out and did not get to watch or stream the uh, service last Sunday evening, uh, but did have a good report from Brother Jeremy and the message last uh, Sunday night, and uh, hearing of the message last Sunday morning and the report of last Sunday night, and uh, could have helped, but uh, think back to over the last couple of months and the different messages that have been preached, and um, if you can't see God's alignment in those things, I sure can, and um, I'm grateful for that, and uh, pray the Lord continue to, uh, to teach us and to bring us uh, His Word uh, that we stand in need of, no matter who fills the pulpit, uh, my desire is to hear from the Lord and uh, to hear the, the Word of God. And uh, it rightly uh, divided and expressed before us. And uh, so I'm grateful for, for Brother Brian, for Brother Jeremy, and uh, most of all, I'm grateful for the Lord and His Word. And so I want to endorse that here before we get started this morning. We'll be reading from the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. And um, I'll note that uh, it seems to me that Baptist people are, are a little hesitant sometimes to uh, look into to to preach from this chapter, and the reason why is that uh, you probably heard or heard someone speak about the Roman road before in a way of of deception that is practiced uh, through a kind of easy believism of sorts that uses Romans chapter ten and a lot of what's going on. Um, I, however, don't think we should be afraid of Romans chapter ten at all. It's nothing that's. Uh, uh, anything that's incorrect or things like that, I believe that we need to uh, preach the full counsel of the Lord. I believe that the book of Romans serves to us as a type of treatise or a, a type of comprehensive understanding or closest thing we have to it in the Scriptures of a systemic uh, doctrine or systemic a place of belief that we can look to to understand what the New Testament church or the New Testament doctrine is all about. And so for that reason, it's important that we look to Scriptures like Romans chapter 10, to understand them and their proper view of the Scriptures. Because make no mistake, like what we see others uh, Scriptures that have been taken out of context and taken out of their rightful place and twisted to support heretical doctrines, that's the exact same thing that's been done here with Romans chapter 10 and these types of easy believism and this heresy that is the Roman road or Roman road salvation. And so this morning, as we look to Romans chapter 10, I want to encourage us to look to the Word of God that we might draw from it rightly what is being spoken to us and what we can rightly see then as evidence and what is purposed for the expression especially concerning the doctrine of salvation. And so this morning, I especially want you who are lost, if you could uh, please, if just for a short while, uh, yield your attention uh, this morning to the Scriptures. Uh, so I think it's a, a, a blessed thing that we have uh, this morning as we begin reading in Romans chapter 10 at verse 1. Paul's writing to the saints at Rome. And he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believe it. 
For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall ascend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh, or the word is near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. In verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we'll stop our reading there at verse 13 and encourage you. I'm on your own time to go back and read uh, throughout the rest of, of this 10th chapter of the book of Romans. Paul is writing, and I want you to know in the ninth chapter, he dealt uh, well concerning the sovereignty of God and the, the nature of salvation. But here in this 10th chapter, he begins to relate that then to what is preventing Israel, what is preventing those who were Jewish in their practice and their tradition and in their faith, what was preventing them or hindering them from being saved. And so Paul remarks and he says, my desire for Israel, his desire for, for those people was that they would be saved. And so he begins to explain then what hinders them. He said they had a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. He said these were a religious people, a people who believed upon the word of God and looked to it as something to be upheld, so much so that they were diligent in practicing the law. They were diligent in upholding according to their own idea of righteousness. He said, but they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They said they were, he was essentially saying they were arrogant in their own righteousness and ignorant of God's righteousness. They were missing what had taken place in the purpose of the law. And as a result of that, they had failed to realize that the law had been fulfilled in the righteousness of Christ. And so what was taking place then? They were looking at the law. They saw the moral law. All of those teachings and commands that dealt with the nature of life. And they were striving to uphold them. And they saw the nature of the ceremonial law, all of those shadows that indicated the work of redemption, that indicated the work of salvation and deliverance, and they were continuing to practice those things, saying that if they could uphold the law, they would find for themselves their own righteousness. But what they missed was that all of that, both the moral law and the ceremonial law, had been fulfilled in one man, Christ Jesus. That this then was the righteousness of God fulfilled in man. In verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Now, we looked at that and we'd say, okay, well, well, how do we begin then to understand that? How is that realized? We certainly know we live in the New Testament time. I'm not preaching this morning to any anyone that's a, that's a Jew here this morning as we congregated ourselves together. But as we look then and we see in our own times, we try to understand what must this all be about. It's very easy for us to try to 
narrow things down to a type of checklist or do this, do that, and do this other thing, and we will see to it some end that we'd have in mind, right? You've all cooked something before. You have some type of recipe. And if you put all those ingredients in in the right order and in the right way, and you put that in the oven at the right temperature for the right amount of time, you would rightly expect to get the end result of what you're looking for, right? And so we have that same idea when it comes to trying to understand what salvation is all about. And so if it was a a works righteousness that we could have, we can understand it, right? Here is the law, and here are these things that we do, and if we do those things, then here would be this end result. Yet here we see Paul telling us that that righteousness, the end of that, would be no righteousness at all, because no man can uphold all of those 600 and some odd laws of the moral law. And certainly we know that the ceremonial law likewise has been done away with, and Paul reckons in verse 5, he says, For Moses has described the righteousness which is, of the law, which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. What's he saying? He's saying the law said that if you're going to do those things, you must live by them. You must uphold them. Your righteousness then must come from them. And Paul's saying, what a hard route to go. Listen to what he says of the fulfillment of Christ. The excuse me, the fulfillment of the law in Christ in verse six, he says, "But the righteousness which is of the which is of faith speaketh on this wise." He says, "Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is, who shall bring Christ down from above?" He says, "Say not into your heart, who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead." He's saying that within the righteousness of Jesus Christ, within salvation, within saving faith, there, it is no longer necessary that there be some works performed that you'd have to go up to bring Christ down or to descend into the depths to bring Christ up. He says, but instead, in verse 7, or verse 8 rather, says, but what saith it? The word is near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. There is a simplicity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only so is there simplicity in the message, but saving faith, a faith and a belief that truly saves, is not so far away that there must be some work that is higher than us to be performed that we might obtain it. Why? Because Christ has already performed the work. It's been accomplished. It is not anything that we can do of ourselves to obtain that righteousness because it is impossible for us. But instead, Jesus Christ has performed it perfectly and completely, so much so that it is near unto us to obtain. Isn't that wonderful? I am grateful this morning. And lost friend, you should be of of such great depths of hope in your heart this morning knowing that salvation is not far from anyone. (laughs) Consider that for a moment. If you were to look to the balance of your life and you were to take and you were to place all of the acts and all the deeds that you have done into this scale, if your life is like mine, you would look to that, you would take a step back, and you would see that that scale was greatly weighed down by all the sins and, and, and all your, the, the deeds that you have done that have fallen short to the glory of God. 
And you would look and you would say, what escape is there for me from this sin? What relief is there for me from all of this weight that has beset me? What hope do I have that I might be able to somehow free myself from all that has grabbed a hold of me and restrains me from this bondage, from this chain that I have been found in that is tied to my sins? Make no mistake this morning, my friend. You who are lost and undone, you are in bondage to your sins. You might say, well, Derek, how, how can that be? You know, I go through my life day to day and it seems like things go pretty well. I go to sleep at night and I wake up the next morning and I genuinely know what my life's going to have in store for me. And I go to work and I come home or I go to school and I come back and the days just continue on. And I look and I examine it, yet you're telling me I am enslaved to my sin. Unless you understand the great depravity in which you find yourself in, you will not understand the greatness of salvation. For your sins are so significant that they have so far removed you from fellowship with God that you have no hope of your own to obtain a right relationship with Him. You are so removed in your sins and it is as though you are as black as night and you cannot stand in the light of His glorious light. So then, what can be done? What freedom can be found from the weight and the bondage of your sins? Jesus Christ has once and for all carried the weight and burden of your sin to a cross at Calvary. He has borne the wrath of God that has been poured out upon Him for your sin. And as a result of that, He has tasted death for every man, though He Himself was wholly righteous and perfect. And according to that then, Scripture teaches us that every man can be saved. And so the question then is, how? How can this be? And some would look to what we would find in the preceding verses that we've read this morning, the book of Romans, the 10th chapter, and they would say there's a type of recipe here for salvation. They would say that Scripture says plainly that if a man would believe in his heart and confess with his mouth that he shall be saved. And I want you to know I believe that to be true. But I think where man errs is failing to recognize both the understanding of what that means to believe and to call upon the name of the Lord, to confess or to profess with your mouth that you believe in the Lord. There's a failure to understand those things. And that failure exists because there's a failure to recognize the great need of salvation. When Adam first took of that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he brought sin, he brought the curse upon to his life and to all generations that would proceed from him. I want you to know sin entered the world and death by sin. And we know that we have this inherited nature of Adam in which we find ourselves to continue to uh, fall in that same trap of sin. 
Yet we know also that these little babies that are among us, that if they were to close their eyes in death, they'd be found underneath the grace of God in which they would surely not taste of hell, but instead that they would be in heaven with the Lord. I, I stand today certain of that fact for these precious little babies upon among us. What then is different about us who are older as we see these little babies? Not merely that we have inherited the sin nature of Adam, but we ourselves have indeed sinned. Listen to me today, my friend. No matter how good you might appear to be, no matter how righteous you may think yourself to be, Scripture is plain when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none good. No, not one. You yourself are, as a, are a sinner and your righteousness before the Lord is as filthy rags. I won't go into it. Just because of the nature of it, it's almost repulsive to even speak about. But if you were to dive into what that really means when it says your righteousness is as filthy rags, it's not talking about a dirty dish rag that you have on your sink. It's talking about something that's far more repulsive than that. Your sin is so gross and it is so great before the Lord that there is a schism between you that cannot be overcome. Not of your own. But God, who is rich in His love and in His mercy towards us, gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So how then, what then, can we understand? What then can we do when the Scripture tells us that if thou shalt believe in thy heart to confess with thy mouth, thou shalt be saved? Let's look to these verses. Verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever shall believeth on him shall be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's look then at some of these action words we have here. We see the word believeth. We see the word confess. And we see the word call. And these are the three words we must look to if we're going to understand the nature of salvation this morning. And in fact, I would go so far as to tell you that all three of these words can be made up in the one word, call. Verse 13, it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, we know the word call. We use it a lot. We will sometimes pick up our phones and we'll say that we have to make a call. What's that mean? We are trying to reach someone that we may speak to them. We sometimes refer to someone in their name. We say, what, what would that be called? If I'm holding something in my hands that I don't recognize and I would look to it and I would go to someone and I would say, do you know what this thing is called? We are referring to it in some way that we might identify it. In fact, in Scripture, a lot of times we see the word call being used to reference someone's surname, their last name, or the name that they'd be given in connection with their name. Simon Peter. Simon who is called 
Peter. And we see that nature and that relationship of the word call. But as we dig into that in the scriptures, we see that call oftentimes carries with it the reference of worship. Whosoever shall worship the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the Lord shall be saved. What's the other way that we see call being used in the scriptures? But a prayer for whosoever shall pray unto the Lord shall be saved. But if there's a call that is taking place, a worship, a prayer, then who would be worshipped and who would be prayed to? The word call carries with it the implicit understanding of some trust. That there is a trust that would be made when you'd be calling out unto the Lord. And I want you to know I like that word trust as an understanding of the word believe. You see, that what takes place which this Roman road salvation has taken and so perverted these Scriptures as to make them heretical in how they would be understood is what they've done is they've cheapened the idea and the understanding of believing. And I want you to know the believing that is understood here, the trusting that is understood here would take so much of your heart that it would would fully and completely turn and change the direction of your life. Listen to me, if you've ever been saved by God's grace, there will be a distinction in your life where you're not who you used to be. Why? Because conversion of a believer that that takes place in their heart converts them away from that sinfulness in which they had once dwelt and it changes them that they might follow after the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to their account. You see, when we say saved, when we refer to salvation, it should ask the question, saved from what? Well, it is saved not only from the punishment of your sins, but it is also, as C.H. Spurgeon would put it, to be saved from the habit of your sins. Somebody who is truly saved will not return into their life that they were living previous to their conversion. Did you hear me? If your life after you say that you've been saved, looks just like the life that you were living before, you need to make your calling election sure. Because according to the Scriptures and according to the evidence of your life, all the conclusion the world can make is that you have not truly been saved. And you say, well, Derek, that is a harsh thing for you to suppose upon someone's life. And I suppose perhaps it is a harsh thing for us to consider. But I want you to know, I would rather that the, the, word, the word of the Lord be true and every man a liar and tell you rightly that Scripture has an expectation of the life of the believer in which their very nature is changed. That's the expectation of the Scriptures. Is that there is a nature change in the believer. What about this then? What about this nature change? Not only is this word call carried with it this understanding of this idea of a, of a belief and a trust and of a worship and a prayer, but it also carries with it the understanding that there would be some profession that would be made. Now, I think this is where Baptists get real nervous because we just don't understand this word confess very well. So Baptists, I apologize for making you all a little nervous this morning. But I want you to know, Scripture says plainly that there is an expectation that those who have been saved will profess that. 
that it will be confessed in their life, the Lord indeed has saved them. If the Lord has saved you and you for some reason are unable to confess that and profess that, I want you to know Scripture says there is something there that is wrong in the expectation, not even expectation, in the command that is to the believer that they would confess of their salvation. And he said, Derek, how can you say that that is a command? What is the expected profession of faith for the believer? I'll give you a hint. There's a great big tub behind me that gives you the answer. The expected profession of the believer of their conversion is baptism. What does Scripture say? Repent to believe the Gospel. That is the full command of salvation. But what else does Scripture say? And it says that we would be baptized. It says to repent to be baptized. I am a Baptist. I believe in the full immersion of the saints of God after the command of the Lord Jesus Christ and His example in which He was baptized by John the Baptist. I don't apologize for that. And I believe that baptism, while it is not necessary to salvation, it is an essential following of salvation that those who have been saved by God's grace would follow the Lord in believers' baptism. And in doing so, we would profess the nature that we had before has been so changed that we are a new creature in Christ Jesus. It's not what baptism is. It is to show to the world that we have been converted, that we have died of our sins, that we are being raised to walk in the newness of life. I can't even do that without doing that baptism step. <laughs> right? Because that's the nature of conversion. That's the nature of baptism is to display to the world I'm not who I used to be. I have been made a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul here is writing to the Roman saints and he says that there would be a, a, a confession, a baptism, a profession that is made unto salvation, he is telling us the expectation that follows full conversion. You say, Derek, you just mixed baptism with confession or profession. And you're right that I did. Because that is the example that we have in the Scriptures of our confession is that it would be met in baptism. You say, well, Derek, give us an example. What do we see the example of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Philip comes to the Ethiopian eunuch who's there and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he's having a hard time understanding who he's reading about. He's reading about Jesus. And so Philip begins to teach him and begins to preach to him of the Gospel and of Jesus. And we see the Ethiopian eunuch, he asks Philip, he says, what can I do to be baptized? He's heard about this baptism. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school this morning as we've been reading in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts about the baptism that was being discussed there and trying to understand of John and, and what Paul was teaching them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so it was like that for the Ethiopian eunuch. He says, what prevents me? So there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Philip said to him, he said, if you, thou believest. He said, I believe. <laughs> he confessed, didn't he? He said, I believe. And he was baptized. He was, Philip was carried away and there went the Ethiopian eunuch rejoicing. What do we ask someone when they join the church? 
What do we ask as a prerequisite of being a member of Faith Church? What do we ask as a prerequisite before entering into the waters of baptism but for a confession? We say we want to know about your salvation. We, we don't want to have to, to try to cause you to fear, try to have some big discourse on your salvation, but we want to know what happened to you. How do you know for sure that what took place? Why? Because we're looking for a confession. We're looking for fruits, meat, for repentance. So then, this call. Let's talk about it very simply. And I'll try to close. It says, for whosoever. I like that word, whosoever. Don't you? You know what my favorite part about the word whosoever is? Is that it includes someone just like me. You see, it's a great big word, whosoever. We don't use it very much in our 2022 vernacular, our way of speech in our day and age. We would rather use words like all or anyone. But I'm satisfied with what the King James Version of the Scriptures does when it says whosoever. Because it also implies an expectation that there would not be uh, some part of you that would be absent from the work. Now I want you to know salvation is holy of the Lord. But I also want you to know that God has never forced Himself upon anyone. You would be a present participant then in your salvation. It's holy of the Lord. But I want you to know you're fully present when He saves you. And you say, well, Derek, I've heard some people say that they, that they lost themselves for a minute. How many times have you heard somebody give their testimony and they'll say, I don't know what happened. Or they'll say something like, I came to the end of myself. Why is that so? Though we are fully present. Well, the reason why that is so is because when we come to the end of ourselves and all of our doing and all of our attempts to try to rationalize with the Lord and figure out our own salvation, when we finally fully let go of our own selves and our own dependency upon trusting in our own selves, we instead fully give our trust to the Lord. In that moment, He miraculously saves us. And it's also in that moment where we've completely lost all of our Ourselves. That no wonder we're left to say, I don't know what happened. Because <laughs> we didn't do it in that moment, did we? It was wholly and completely of the Lord. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? It seems like every testimony I've ever heard, though no matter what words is used to describe it, they all end up in the same way. I got to the end of me, and there I found the Lord. You've heard people say they had to give up bicycles, give up their mom and dad, give up their parents, this and that. What all those things hold in common is that they had to let go of all that we would hold on to. All that we would trust in. All that you would trust in. That you might instead fully trust in the Lord. 99% trust is not complete in full faith. 99% won't do. Let me ask you a question. If I was to hold up here a, a brand new bottle of unopened water, and I looked at it, and you looked at it, and we are both satisfied and agree that it was completely pure, unadulterated water, 
And I took the cap off that bottle of water and I had a little dropper of, of, of sewage. And I just put one little drop of sewage in that water and I put the cap back on and I shook it up and I sat it here. I suppose neither one of us would be able to see that that water was tainted. But if I was to ask you if you would drink that water, having seen that it had been tainted in any way, you would surely say no, wouldn't you? Why? Because you would see that water had some impurity in it, didn't it? So then, when it comes to our trust in the Lord, how could we expect that the Lord would be satisfied with anything that would be tainted by any type of our own belief or confidence in ourselves, but instead of a full surrendering to the Lord? That's the nature of salvation. A full surrendering to the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. There is a will here that is understood. A surrendering not just of the mind. A surrendering not just of the heart. But a surrendering of the will. I want to emphasize that just for a moment. Because I see a lot of people who struggle with salvation. They say, I don't know what's standing in the way of the Lord saving me. Or, or they'll even talk about it from a rational perspective. They'll say, you know, I, I, I would want to believe in this Jesus that you're teaching and this Jesus that you're telling me about. But there is something that holds me back and that I'm unwilling to, for, to relent of my life. I'm unwilling to give up all the sins of this flesh that I enjoy. There's a reluctance and an unwillingness willingness to give up their will unto the Lord. How many of you have had a strong-willed child? I won't ask for a show of hands. All right, some of you put your hands up anyway. Anyone who has a strong-willed child, they're normally willing to tell you about it. What's that mean? You have a child that trying to, to, to break and get them to submit their will, it just seems like it's next to impossible. Some of you are looking over at your kids right now. But it's just next to impossible. Why? Because they are strong-headed. They are strong in their beliefs. They're strong in what they want to do. And you're trying to convince them to do anything different. And it is so bothers them that they cannot help but disobey you because of their will that they're unwilling to let go of or relinquish. I want you to know I have a couple of kids that their will is so soft. I so much as give one of my children a stern look and they'll just crumble. And then that third one, she's different. I ain't figured her out yet, but I will at some point. But she has a stronger will than the other two do. As a result of that, trying to get her to obey, it's much more challenging to me as a father because I want to be careful to not break her spirit while trying to break her will. And make no mistake, I want you to know this morning that I believe it's important that children are taught that they would submit their will unto their parents. And the reason, primary reason why I think that is so important is that they will grow up and someday be saved where they themselves can become willing to submit their will unto the Lord. Didn't you read the first part what you read here in Romans chapter 10? where Paul is writing concerning Israel and spoke of how they have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God, there must be a submission of mind, of heart, and of will that would take place for you to be saved. 
And so today, sinner friend, you who are stubborn, you who are strong-headed, you who know exactly who I'm talking about when I say those things, you must submit your will unto the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Because when your will is crushed, when your stubborn heart relinquishes its control and instead cries out in that desperate hope of salvation, in that moment when the Lord hears that cry of surrender, He will save you and save you just like that. This is not some long drawn out thing. I've heard people suppose before that their salvation took place over a long course of time. Well, maybe their repentance did before they got in that condition where the Lord could save them. But I want you to know the Lord saves fully and He saves completely and He saves just like that. All in one moment. You are changed from a beggar unto a rich man, from a lost sinner unto a saint of God. You're taken from darkness into the marvelous and wonderful light of Jesus Christ. And it's accomplished all in but a moment. Isn't that wonderful? Shall call upon the name of the Lord. Make no mistake. And that the work of salvation is a work of the Lord. I think sometimes we sit in altar services and they go on for a long time. My daughter sought for something like a year or so and it was challenging to watch her seek again and again and again. It was challenging to bow with her in our bedroom floor and hear her cry out to the Lord. And me as a father sitting there almost with an anger in my heart saying, God, why will you not save her? Do you not hear her pitiful plea? But then at once, in one moment, back in March, right over here, finally, and at last, she submitted herself fully to the righteousness of God. She fully let go of whatever in her heart it was that she continued to cling to and instead placed her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that moment, all of that work that had taken place for a year where was and efforts were made and, and attempts were made by her and calling upon the Lord, and that moment the Lord heard her cry and she was saved. Some of you were here that night. I don't know if you remember it or not, but I sure do. He said, Derek, what, what transpires? What takes place? Why is it so hard for some and it seems so easy for others? Well, I want you to know it's the same work of the Lord in everyone. And so if there's any measure of difficulty involved in salvation, it's a measure that we put upon it ourselves. Because the Scripture is true, the Scripture is faithful, and the expectation is right that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I know we've looked to a lot of words today, but I want to look to just one more as we close. And it might be my favorite word in all of this. If it's not whosoever, it's this one. It's the shall. Shall be saved. It's not a perhaps. It's not a might. 
It's not a maybe you will, maybe you won't. It's a shall be saved. Everyone who believes with a full heart, everyone who completely repents and turns away from their life, everyone who trusts in the Lord and submits to Him and surrenders to Him shall be saved. You sinner friend today who are wondering, can someone like me be saved? I want you to know Romans chapter 10, verse 13 answers your question when it says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You today who are lost in your sins. You whose life is so fettered and so held back because of all of your iniquity. You today who are young and you say, Derek, all that I know is that this Jesus that you're speaking about, all I know is that there is something in my heart that is drawing me to Him. I don't understand the half of the things that you're saying, but I feel this, this tug on my heart that was calling me to the Lord. I want you even today to know, my friend, that you can be saved if you call upon the name of the Lord trust in Him. The work's already been done. He is near to us. Don't you hear the Scriptures? When it tells us, but what saith it, the Word is near thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the Word of faith which we preach. Paul here would go on in this 10th chapter and he would speak about the nature of preaching and the nature of the Gospel. But what we would see is he get down to verse 16 and say, but they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? And we see that there's a report that is made in the Gospel. And I want you to know that very word report is the same word that we use or that we see being translated as hearing. This morning, lost friend, you have heard the Gospel. You have been instructed concerning the nature of salvation. You have been adequately prepared to call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that cool? All that you need today to be saved has already been done. All the understanding that you need today to repent of your sins and and believe the Gospel, it's already been given to you. And so all that is waiting is for you to call upon the name of the Lord. (laughs) I just think that's incredible. So I want to give you opportunity this morning. Brother Corey, if you get us a song, let's stand to our feet. Sinner friend, this morning the Lord's dealing with you in some way. Like I said, I don't know if you're able to get even the slightest understanding of the depths of what we look to in this 10th chapter of the book of Romans this morning. But I want you to know the important part is the part that we read in verse 13 when it said, For whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So as we stand and as we sing this morning, if the Lord's drawing you, you feel that inclination upon your heart to seek after Him and to call upon Him, we want to invite you to do that. As we stand and as we sing,